In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Some of you may know that disgraced former time witch Joanna showed up at my house last week. She stayed for a few days until her condition worsened and we had to check her into a private health clinic, the location of which I cannot divulge. She's definitely been stripped of her power, and all I can glean is that some kind of caprine monstrosity is the culprit. When I tried to play her chapter one of our new audio drama, Goat Valley Campgrounds, she reacted by screaming in abject horror. Now, Goat Valley Campgrounds is pretty scary, but we hadn't even got past the first paragraph. Oh, and speaking of Goat Valley Campgrounds, chapter two drops today. Be sure to check that out, but listen to the first chapter if you haven't already. Last night, I received a call from her clinic They asked me if I knew anything about the stricken orchard. Apparently, Joanna keeps yelling about it. Now, does that ring a bell to any of you? Nothing's springing to mind. She's also been yelling about the town of Gilded Fields, though. And something about that sounds familiar. And I don't think it has anything to do with the Goat Valley campgrounds. Ah, well. Mysteries stack upon mysteries. I shall dwell on them in due time. But now... On with our latest episode. In our first tale, we join our main character fleeing through the forest. Dad's being a drunken dickhead again, and who wants to put up with that? So a midnight flight through the dark woods is in the cards. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, is that a light we can spy through the trees? Is there solace to be found in the middle of nowhere? Performing this tale is Matthew Bradford. So whether your preference is a 7-Eleven, a Tesco, or a Wawa, let's hope you find your favorite when you encounter the supermarket in the woods. When I was 10 years old, I tried to run away from home. My father had come home drunk, yelling about my messy room before stomping on my game console. 
My rage bubbled up, watching through tear-blurred eyes as plastic fragments scattered about with each violent blow. I ran off that night into the woods with no destination. I just wanted to get as far away from him as possible. It was mid-September, and the nights had started to get a little cooler. I was wearing a hoodie and jeans as well as a ratty pair of sneakers. I had no idea where I was headed, but I was determined to keep running. My anger clouded my judgment, and soon I was deep in the woods. After heading towards where I thought a road should have been for far too long with no luck, I realized I was lost. The woods were dense and dark, and aside from the chirps of crickets, it was dead quiet. The moonlight barely illuminated the pillars of tree trunks that obscured the view in every direction. I looked at the GPS on my phone only to find there was no service. The pinpoint placed me at the woods' edge near my parents' home, and I'd been walking for over half an hour. I spun around as panic set in. Thoughts of being killed by some bobcat or bear kept my heart beating fast in my chest. I also knew that people went missing every year. I'd see their faces on flyers at the post office or stapled to telephone poles. I decided to keep walking, knowing it should only be a matter of time before I reached a road. Soon, I saw a light far ahead of me, hazy and distant. I walked towards it, watching the light source glow from deep in the woods. It was a large building of sorts, and every step closer provided more details. Eventually, I could see it clearly. It was a supermarket, seemingly ripped from its previous location and dropped smack down in the midst of the trees. There wasn't a single road or even footpath leading to the rectangular building, and the greenish tint of fluorescent lights on the sides cast an eerie glow on the surrounding trees. I walked closer in utter confusion, trying to figure out why on earth it was there with absolutely no practical way to access it. It was so surreal that a giddy sense of wonder compelled me to check it out. Double sliding glass doors give a view to the interior. There are aisles of boxes and canned goods, and even meat products in the refrigerated sections at the market's edges. I walked closer, and to my surprise, the sliding glass doors parted, opening for me. It was after midnight, yet the market appeared to be open. I stepped inside, eager to pick up a soda to quench my thirst. See, I had run away in such a hurry I'd forgotten to grab the essentials, including water. This mysterious market was a godsend, I thought. So I walked down the aisles, observing strange packaging and products I'd never seen before in my life. The first thing I noticed was the writing on the boxes lining one of the shelves. I walked closer to one and couldn't read a single word. It was like no fonts or language I'd ever seen. The image on the box was of a baby, so my mind went to baby formula, until I leaned in closer to make out the details. The illustrated baby in the image was reminiscent of a 50s-style watercolor, Rockwellian in the cheerful color palette. It held a knife and a fork, and its pink tongue was at the side in hungry anticipation. The baby stared down hungrily over a bowl of what first appeared to be sausages, but on closer inspection, I felt a wave of nausea hit me. It was a bowl full of intestines. Ropey, bloody pink innards that were spilling out of the illustrated infant's own stomach, trickling red lines from the open wound on its midsection. I gasped and took a step back, looking at a few other bizarre and macabre illustrations. 
another box had a completely different font I also didn't recognize. Strange looping characters that spiraled out from a central circle in different ways. The image was of a human bowl of noses and lips, and an illustrated puff of steam rose from the bowl to show the appetizing nature of the hideous gore within. I stepped back in revulsion. I turned to the deli meats and the refrigerated display cases lining the walls and let out an involuntary yelp. Shrink-wrapped human hands and feet lay displayed on styrofoam trays like normal cuts of beef. Segments of human skulls with hair on the circumference and brains bisected in the middle. Eyeballs, ears, and tongues all lay perfectly packaged, plastic-wrapped, and stacked in the display. Each butchered appendage or gouged-out fleshy part had a sickly green hue from the fluorescent overhead lights. I backed up as my mind went into a panic. I briskly walked over to the automatic sliding glass doors, but froze in my tracks as the clatter of my foot caught a stack of cans in the aisle. With the tins, decorated with photographs of neatly stacked fingers, toppled down to the linoleum floor that seemed to belong to some bygone time in Americana decor. The rattle they made was deafeningly loud in the supermarket, which had previously been silent but for the buzz of the greenish overhead lighting. A wet grunt and clicking sounded from an aisle over. I saw a long, strange shadow grow as whatever was in the aisle approached. The shadow looked off, like whatever was casting it had too many appendages, and a gurgling sound erupted that set my heartbeat into overdrive. I ran to the sliding glass doors and pressed my small hands against the plexiglass pane, but they weren't opening. My heart thudded against my ribcage and my hands shook as they struggled to pry apart the doors. In the dark window panes leading out to the wilderness, I saw the reflection of what was behind me, slowly emerging from the aisle next to where I'd had my unfortunate trip. Something was fast approaching, and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Long, segmented limbs, flesh-colored but far from human. A hideous head reminiscent of a skinned sheep's head but with a wide open jaw, cobbled with filthy, pointed teeth. It was the single most horrifying thing I had ever seen, and my heartbeat pounded in my ears as the thing scrambled on the smooth flooring towards me. I pushed with all the strength in my small arms and felt the door slide open. The cool breeze hit my face and I ran, stumbling forward into the woods. The lights from the bizarre supermarket dimmed with each bounding stride as I sprinted deeper into the darkness, away from that terrible, impossible place. I ran far and fast and only stopped when my breaths were an exhausted wheezing and I was surrounded by darkness. I looked back. There was no source of light, no sign of anything in pursuit. I was safe, at least for the time being. I returned back home to an angry father. His face only got redder once I mentioned the strange supermarket in the woods. He sent me to my room and told me I was grounded, but he didn't lay a finger on me. And that was the end of it. It wasn't until last week, nearly 20 years later, that I thought about it again. I'd booked a flight home from LAX for my father's funeral. We kept in touch here and there as I grew older, and I forgave him knowing he wasn't long for this world. He'd apologized profusely in the rare times we talked, more so after the divorce. My mother took me out west with her to start a new life. She remarried and he got sucked deeper into that bottle. I hadn't been back in rural New Jersey in over a decade, and cheap flights meant taking whatever abysmal flight time they had left to fill. Mine was a red eye leaving Cali at 10 p.m., 
arriving in Newark at 4.30 a.m. due to the time zone change. The dead of night. I had convinced myself over the years that the details I'd witnessed were just products of a terrified child's mind, an overactive imagination, a distorted memory, perhaps. But once our plane began its descent over the seemingly endless woods near my childhood home, I saw it. The glowing green leaves from a light source just beneath the canopy. Something you'd likely not notice at all, or perhaps chalk up to the perimeter lighting of a woodland home or some log cabin retreat. But there is no home nestled beneath those treetops. There are no roads or even footpaths to the patch of glowing forest illuminated by fluorescent lights under the dense cover of the trees. There are, however, missing persons posters on telephone poles that, in retrospect, seemed to have been far too abundant in our town when I was a child, as did the sheer number of pleas in the newspaper offering reward money for information about missing children. I looked out the plane's window, no longer able to deny the connection. There is a night supermarket deep in those dense woods, a supermarket that, just like any other, occasionally needs to restock. Sailing. They are sailing, drifting together on the wide, wide sea. Everything is peace. Everything is tranquility. Everything is beautiful. But in this tale, shared with us by author Davis Walden, a terrifying realization dawns. One of our heroes has an exam in the morning. But when they dock back up, things seem different. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Jeff Clement. So let's explore this place, familiar yet eerily different. Let's see what we can discover as we make our way through a coastal town. Waves slopped up against the hull of the boat prodding us back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Off somewhere, I don't even know how far, maybe 14 kilometers, the cresting whites of waves slapped and crashed against Iris Island's rocky shores. The percussive thalump, shh, thalump, shh, soared up and all around us. It was colder out than before, much colder, and starting to rain. I pulled the edge of the comforter and wrapped it underneath myself. I clenched the crook of my arm and pulled myself tight up against the skin of Rory's back. I took one last breath of salty air before diving into the smell of his hair. Rory sighed and nestled up closer to me. He tangled his fingers into mine and tugged my arm around himself. My fingers traced figure eights across his skin. I shuffled up closer to him. Drew around. Why? 
I asked, knowing exactly what he meant. I felt a twitch of warmth in the air, just like how you know someone's close to you when your eyes are closed. I knew the edges of his lips were curling into a smile. Because you're being distracting. I grinned. Oh, am I? Rory looked down and grabbed me. Yeah. Yeah, you are. What are you going to do about it? Turn around. I did as I was told. He wrapped his arms around me and let out a relieved sigh. You're being little spoon now. One more hour. Just one more hour of sleepy time. And what if I can't sleep? You always say that. And I always can't. Besides, we're on a boat. Not exactly the peak of comfy sleeping. I nestled up against the arch of his body. What if you tell me a story? Wasn't there some local legend you were going to tell me about? I mean, there was. Meridian's a college town, so there were more than enough of those to go around. Like, for example, everyone used to dare each other to break into this one abandoned mansion. The story goes that a massive fire killed dozens of people at a Halloween party, and that their ghosts haunt the place to this day. So, of course, you'd go check the place out on Halloween and wander around. I'm surprised none of us ever fell straight through the floor half the time. But unlike that, what happened on Iris Island is a documented fact and not just some silly urban legend. Back before TikTok and YouTube, all it took to find out if the story was true was a trip to the library. Now, every dark historian and urban legend lover can't wait to get their hands on the story for a couple views. I mean, most people I know in town have heard the story at least once. Back in, like, 1986, three lighthouse workers were on the island over Christmas Eve in the old lighthouse. The guy who ran the place, a high schooler who was supposed to take over for him, and a guy who was delivering supplies and staying for the weekend. All three of them disappeared without a trace. When people went to investigate, the place was a total mess. The windows in the house were shattered, supplies and clothes were scattered out across the lawn, and they found evidence of salt water having breached the second floor of the building. That means there'd have to have been a wave of some sort to have towered over 30 feet to even get there. And all that was left from the three guys there were these scribbled wild notes about a storm having hit the island but on the mainland there was nothing but crystal clear skies. I rolled my eyes. What time is it? I have no clue. I unwrapped myself out of Rory's clutches and checked my phone. I flicked it open and got blasted with a jet of white light. I winced and swiped it down to a lower brightness. Shit, it's 2.30. Rory got up. Wait, seriously? He shuffled across the deck and gathered up his clothes. I have an exam in, like, like five hours. I thought your class was at eight. Rory bent over and slipped on his underwear. It is, but I have to print out an essay that's due today. Your professor scheduled an essay and an exam on the same day? No, no, no. I, I have back-to-back classes, and I need one for the other. I stood up, and the comforter slipped off of me. We could still try for another hour. Rory let out the heaviest groan I've ever heard and threw my clothes at me. 
After I got dressed, I leaned up against the wheel and stared out at the horizon. Meridian's waterfront was almost completely dark. Iris Island's new lighthouse, the one they've had since 1987, built on the other side of the island, swept its light over us. It felt weird looking at it, and I couldn't figure out why. Maybe I was more tired than I thought. Roy rested his chin on my shoulder. Weird. There was a power outage back home? I leaned my head against his. Maybe. We'll have to go real slow, just in case. We pulled up into the dock. I looked over at Rory. He was sitting down on the edge of the boat and looking out at all of the buildings. Rory, help me out with the knots? Rory bit his lip. These aren't the kind of knots that I'm used to. I twisted around. I'm sorry? (laughs) Oh, you should have seen the look on your face. (laughs) I hopped up out of the boat and twisted the line into a knot. I kept this up until the boat was locked tight into place. Rory wasn't smiling as much anymore. He went a little gray. What's up? You think it's weird that there's no lights at all? I looked at all of the buildings behind us. Rory was right. There weren't any. No candles, no phones, no random flashlights. And no people out. It's 2.30. It's Monday morning. Not like anyone's going to be out right now. Yeah. And asleep. Yeah. I don't know. You know how weird it is on the way back home after a night out? You hardly ever see anyone. I gripped Rory's hand and pulled him onto the dock. He tripped and stumbled up closer against my chest. (laughs) Did you do that on purpose? (laughs) I'm clumsy enough as is. I doubt I could plan this. I slipped my fingers into the loops of his shorts and pulled him closer to me. I pressed my lips against his and sighed into him. Rory's hands traveled across my waist, the tips of his fingers grazing my side. I gave him a gentle push. Okay, okay. We need to get home. Roy nodded. Yep. Yep, you're right. Because you have an exam in... Well, sorry to inform you. Four hours. And I'd hate to be a distraction. Rory gasped. Don't use my words against me. A trash can got knocked over somewhere. The night was so dead it sounded like the only sound for miles. Shit. You don't think someone saw us, do you? Shame trickled up my spine and into my gut. He was still embarrassed about any kind of PDA, even in places like a gay bar. No, we're fine. Besides, Meridian's not like that. No one's going to be a problem because... because two guys kissed. Rory looked like he wasn't sure. If you say so. I do say so. That got him to crack a smile, but it still wasn't enough. All of the romance we had was sucked out of the air. You want to grab a bite to eat? We started walking down the pier. Jesus, a burger and fries would be amazing right now. Too bad everything's fucking closed. You're forgetting about that one place. That one place was the biggest college dive in town. Rick's was a sprawling Frankenstein's monster of two properties stitched gruesomely together to form a single bar. Four stories of drunken antics, piss troughs, and floors covered in who knows what. But you know what Rick's was amazing at? 
food. Doubt they'd even be open with this power out. I groaned and my stomach curled, thinking about their three-tiered bacon cheeseburger. Rory drifted a little ways away from me to the side, like he didn't want to be seen within a foot of me. Maybe because he knew this center of gravity would pull me in closer and closer until I tried to lean against him or hold his hand. A cold breeze cut between us. He smiled at me and my heart fluttered. But you didn't know they have a generator, did you? How the heck did you know they have a generator? I pulled out my phone. I hardly knew how to find the place from here, and I highly doubted Rory did. You never read the pamphlets they have by the door? I turned on my data. No bars. Weird. No, I haven't. Like, ever. Back in some northeaster... Nor'easter? I kept thumbing my data on and off. On and off. It didn't make sense. That should have been working. There was no way that the data on my phone wasn't running. We should have been able to pull up a map. Nor'easter. Everyone ran out of power, and they... Shit. Does your phone work? Roy pulled it out of his pocket. Out of power. Why? Data's not fucking working for some reason. Roy looked at a spot behind me and raised his hand. Uh, Hey! I turned around. There was a man wearing a baseball cap standing some distance away. Maybe like 40 feet from us. In the middle of the road. He looked about 40-something, maybe. It was hard to tell in the dark. He wasn't facing us, and he didn't turn around. Uh, Hey, uh, do you know how to get to Rick's? The man didn't answer. I grabbed Rory's finger. Hey, I don't think we need help. We'll find it. Rory brushed me off. Hey, not here. I shoved my hands back into my pockets. The man still didn't turn around. He was just standing there, with his head a little cocked to the side. Except... When did he move? When? He's closer now. What? No, he's not. I blinked. He was closer again. Maybe like five feet. I snatched Roy's hand. Come on. Dude, stop doing that. I told you. Not here. I looked back at the man. He was 20 feet from us now. How the... We have to go. I don't like this. I looked behind me and there was another man there. And another. One of them was wearing a heavy yellow oilskin coat and boots. And the other was someone maybe our age wearing a flannel and ripped jeans. Neither of them were staring in our direction. Rory, keep staring at the guy ahead of us. Rory snapped his head at me. What? I looked in the other direction. The man in the baseball cap was 15 feet away from us now. Rory, look at the man ahead of us now. Rory did and paled. How... how did he do that? I looked at the other two men. They were 30 feet away. Let's get back to the boat. We should go to Rick's. No. No, something's wrong. Something caught my eye in the window of an apartment building. It was a woman, facing away from the street. Rory grabbed my arm. We're going to run on the count of three... No. One. Rory, don't. Two. Three. Rory sprinted past me and left me on the sidewalk. I stumbled into gear and started chasing after him. Don't look back! I couldn't help it, though. There were so many of them now. 
Women, men, children, all of them facing away from us. We veered onto the portside street and spotted the docks up ahead. I stared down both ends of the road and saw dozens of people moving closer and closer to us. The tide was higher than I'd ever seen before. Waves crested up and over the railing, sending liters of seawater onto the road. We got to the dock and it was almost fully submerged. We started wading through the calf-deep water to get to the boat. The lines of rope and my knots were beginning to loosen up, and I could see the boat shifting back and forth as if it wanted to float away. The wave pummeled into me and dragged me off of the dock and into the water. Rory? Rory stopped and started wading his way over to me. I looked behind us. All of the people were staring at us from the road. The whole crowd of them. But this time, they were turned around. They didn't have faces or bodies. Their clothes were being suspended in the air by almost solid shadows. They had eyes, though. And their eyes were burning with a searing white light. I swam my way over to Rory as currents tugged at my body, beckoning me further out into the water. A wave pushed me forward and up into Rory's arms. We looked for the boat again. The knot that kept it down were fully loose and slipping. We're almost there. Rory and I half swam, half walked through waist-deep seawater and fought against the waves and currents. We used the wave's momentum to pull us closer to the boat and leapt in at the right moment so to not get tossed back by the white crest. I stumbled onto the boat's rail and pulled myself up, making sure Rory tumbled in with me. Our boat wobbled out of the port and passed all of the other floating boats into the open ocean. Meridian looked like it was beginning to sink. Wave after wave after wave made the roads disappear, and the first floors of the buildings submerged. The shadow people, whoever they were, had moved up to higher ground. As the waves shot past those that remained, the rest stood by on roofs and in windows. Their white, starry eyes glared out towards us as our boat shuffled through the waves and passed abandoned boats loosed from their moorings. I laughed and hugged Rory as tight as I could. I never wanted to let go. The lighthouse's light passed over us, and it was then that I realized why it had looked so off to me before. In 1987, a new lighthouse was built on the east end of Iris Island to replace the old and outdated one. The lighthouse that was shining over the both of us the entire time sat on the west side of the island, where the original lighthouse had stood. Imagine the vibe. You're cruising down midnight boulevards, the hum of your engine a low purr. Music drifts from nearby bars, but it's passe. You've seen it all before. You want something exciting. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, there's an alley just visible in the darkness that you've never been down before. Somehow you know that it promises wonders, but as with all wonders... There's a cost. Performing this tale are David Alt, Andy Cresswell, James Cleveland, Erica Sanderson, and Penny Scott Andrews. So let's slip behind the wheel and go explore the neon-drenched world of night driving. 
Life feels too claustrophobic during the day, too busy, stuffed with familiarity. It's why I like night driving. There's a velvety softness to the darkness that takes me back to being a kid. Endless journeys wrapped in blankets on the back seat of my parents' car, full of wonder and hardly a care in the world, following the moon through towering canopies. It's six minutes past two. I figure I'll turn right at Wallington Road and make my way back. An hour or two is all I need. My fix, if you like. I'm not sure Beck would ever understand, but it's a conversation I'd prefer not to have. Besides, I'm always tucked up beneath the covers well before she begins to stir. Soft red light brings me to a halt, and it feels as though time stands still, no movement at all. I wind the window down, breathing in the damp air and enjoying the untainted petrichor. The moon hangs seductively low and full, but my eyes are getting tired and I must resist its pull. We're off again. It's more than just tranquility. Darkness brings an underlying feeling that anything could happen, as though magic hides behind its black cloak. Almost palpable energy carries a hum, putting the body in a different mode from when the sun's up. At least that's what it feels like to me. Escapism, you could call it, I guess, from a life that has become far too predictable, far too tedious. Wait, I've not seen that before. More of an alley than a road, the surface is cobbled, basking in white light and framed by an archway that looks out of place, extending from one abandoned warehouse to another. It resembles a staged scene from a movie. As I habitually flick on the indicator, the subsequent clicking impossibly loud against the dampened soundtrack of night, my skin begins to prickle and the hum becomes a thrum. Carefully and slowly, I roll over the first of the cobblestones, heart rate elevating further as stage lights begin to bask the ground ahead. I arch my neck, looking for the source, but find nothing. The car rumbles, and I lean forward, chin almost on the wheel, making sure I'm straight and searching for whatever awaits. The thrum becomes a buzz. The tap on the passenger window forces a jolt and sends my heart almost through my chest. I snap my head around to find a man's round and lined face framed by massive, even rounder shoulders. I'm going to get mugged. <laughs> He's going to fucking do me in. I swallow hard, not a drop of saliva in my mouth. He taps on the window again, gesturing me to wind the window down. I freeze, mind racing mainly with thoughts of ending up in a bin bag. Fuck. Fuck. I press the button, but leave my finger lingering just in case. As the cold night begins to seep in, I wait for Pitbull to pull a gun or to wave a knife in my face. Instead, he offers a smile, exposing impossibly white teeth, all bar the gold one. You can leave your car here, sir. One by one, the mysterious lights go out. Shit. Oh, shit. Is it a threat? Is he telling me to leave my car here? I don't really want to. Relax, sir. I've got what you're looking for. Pitbull's voice is gruff, but far from aggressive. Friendly, even. Is he talking about drugs? Maybe he's an undercover cop. You won't believe your eyes, sir. 
It's so cold, but my palms are sweating against the wheel. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I think I might have made a mistake. Oh no, sir. You're in exactly the right place at the right time. He straightens and begins walking away, the sound of his footsteps on the cobbles echoing down the alley. Never to be repeated. I consider reversing driving back home to my comfortable life and comfortable wife. I convince myself that's what I'm going to do. The alternative is stepping into a dark alley with a stranger built like a brick shithouse for company. Surely that would be the worst idea of my life to date. Never to be repeated, the guy had said. His words rattle around my head, right place at the right time. Wait. All this time, night driving on the off chance, something exciting, something exhilarating might be waiting around the next corner, never to be repeated. I step out of the car, feeling the full chill of the night, but the involuntary shudder is more about what the night might have in store. We walk in silence until we reach the iron door, our breath clouds peppering the air. Finally, he turns to face me, smiling that smile again. This will be the best night of your life, sir. My skin crawls more with excitement than fear, never to be repeated. I nod and reach for the handle, but he snaps his fingers around my wrist, still smiling. Just the matter of the entrance fee, sir. Here we go. How much? A day. <laughs> what? Well, just 24 hours, sir. Not much in the grand scheme of things. Not with life being so mundane and all. That's why you're out here, isn't it, sir? He still has my wrist. There's no pressure, but it feels intimidating. Sorry, sir. He releases me as though reading my thoughts. Old Abbot. You're telling me I need to give you 24 hours of my life just to get in? You've got it, sir. But trust me, it's more than worth it. This is crazy shit. A dream, maybe? No, no way. I can feel the wind, the chill in my bones. Everything is too well-defined, down to the damp moss between the cobblestones. Fuck it, let's do this. The man's smile stretches wider. It's a deal, then. He pushes the door inwards. The warmth and soft neon glow entice me in without time for a second thought. In contrast to the rundown and crumbling brickwork on the outside, the foyer screams decadence. Marble floors, mirrored walls, Steinway piano, spiral staircase leading to a series of rooms upstairs, and a huge bar full of enticing liquor. A woman, the upper half of her face covered with a jewel-encrusted masquerade mask of a horse, steps forward, silver sequined gown shimmering under the exorbitant chandelier. She smiles and extends an arm, offering a silver tray with an array of vibrantly colourful drinks. Welcome, sir. I reach for the cocktail glass half full of cyan-coloured liquid. The door closes behind me. That will be six hours, sir. I offer a bewildered smile, hand hovering over the tray. She nods, her expression unchanged. The scent of her perfume lands at the back of my throat, exotic and spicy, irritating and at the same time moorish, like an itch I cannot scratch. Just another enigma in a bizarre evening.
Six hours for one drink seems expensive. This is a very exclusive club, sir. I know, never to be repeated. She nods. I can ask Frank to escort you back to your car if you'd prefer. Six hours? Six hours of my life for one drink? It seems like a lot, but at the same time doesn't. Breaking it down, six more hours of mundanity, six more hours of waiting for something to happen. It's so cold out there, sir. Her smile widens. Plenty of flesh inside to keep you warm. In that case, cheers. I hold up the glass. The blue liquid begins to slip down, cool and syrupy, flavor exploding at the back of my throat into a perfect blend of bitter, sweet and sour. This is good. The main bar's upstairs. We'll run a tab. Here, let me take your jacket. She elegantly glides in behind me and expertly slips it off, her maddening perfume and touch sending my heart racing. She takes it to the coat rack behind the counter, dominated by a huge and out-of-place-looking old-fashioned cash register, returning with a mask. Club rules, sir. A wolf? Full moon after all, sir. Howl! My howl is instinctive and croaky, but gets a laugh. I can feel the drink already taking effect and the chill leaving my bones. Hairs bristle at the back of my neck with anxious excitement of what awaits upstairs. This way, sir. I feel a pang of guilt as I follow the horse lady into the unknown, watching her shapely hips as she confidently leads me towards the spiral staircase. Beck asleep at home, nestled under the sheets, trusting that each night I'm there by her side. But as has been pointed out, this is a one-off experience, never to be repeated. As I grab the banister, I note the rusty metal door on the far side of the wall, another incongruous choice for an otherwise outrageously lavish establishment. A sign fizzes to its right, the letters E, X and T spasmodically illuminating. Laughter and moans from above grab my attention, and I quicken my pace in case there's a chance the entire scene will begin to melt away. The woman glances over her shoulder and smiles, flawlessly making her way up the final three steps, long fingers coiled around the railing, sporting nails deep red in colour. This is where I leave you, sir. She tilts her face and draws her lips to within an inch of mine. I hope you have the most wonderful of evenings, sir. It's an exciting standoff, the two of us so close breathing in each other. I'm not sure how much time passes before our lips finally connect. Our tongues find each other's quickly and she draws me in further, my body aching with desire, her taste, scent and feel awakens something dormant within. Finally, she breaks and I let rip with another howl. She smiles, and I move in again, but she raises a finger to my lips. That one was on the house, sir. I just licked a gift horse in the mouth. How much for another? I realize how desperate and unrefined my words sound. I'm sorry, it's just... I understand, sir. Plenty of time for that. Through here, sir. And, once again, have a wonderful evening. 
The light is subdued and inviting. Soft piano music and the clink of ice cubes win me over quickly as I head towards the bar in search of more warmth. Good evening, sir. What's your tipple? The bartender is wearing a joker's mask, even has little bells that tinkle at each move of his head. Surprise me. This causes three young women to my left, all wearing cat masks and silky black dresses, to break into a group snigger. (laughs) Indeed, sir. He nods and smiles, going to work, mixing and shaking like a pro. The room is small and busy, but not excessively noisy. The low hum of conversation occasionally overlaid by the crackle of laughter or exaggerated moans from behind the four purple doors in the far wall. This one's a 12-hour cocktail, sir, but it's our best. I nod and smile at the group of three, bringing the liquid to my lips. It feels like I'm drinking fire at first, but the sting fades quickly, leaving an extraordinary palette of botanical essence and fruits. Summer in my mouth. Another, please. My leg starts tapping to the piano music as I soak up the ambiance. I'm comfortably warm, refreshed, and the liquor is giving me a second wind. I've no idea when this strange fantasy will end, but I'll be here to see it through. Never to be repeated. I toast the barman and knock back the liquid lava. The first of the doors open. Three smartly dressed men and a woman in a cocktail dress emerge and make their way towards the bar, flawless, apart from disheveled hair and slightly off-kilter masks. I offer the barman a wink. To my left, the three ladies finish their drinks and make their way towards the open door. They all turn in unison and, in almost perfect synchronization, utter, Are you coming, sir? My mouth hangs agape, causing another outbreak of giggles. (laughs) Yes. I finally manage to croak. The middle one offers a wink of her own. Bring some champagne. 1959 Dom Perignon. The barman places the bottle and four glasses on a silver tray. They have expensive tastes. How much is that? Do you really want to know? I grab the neck of the bottle and ease myself from the stool. No. As soon as I close the door and place the tray down, their hands are on me, caressing, stroking. My knees feel weak and I let out a garbled moan of submission to more giggles. (laughs) One of them uncorks the bottle to tremendous applause and we raise our glasses towards the soft purple ceiling light. They're on me, leading me towards a chair in the centre of the room. Working at my buttons, they slide against each other like serpents, making me think that snake masks would be more suitable. Each of them lets their straps fall across their shoulders, the one on the right wags a finger at me. No touching. Well, for you, anyway. A nagging voice in my head screams at me to ask how much this will all cost, but how could I be so crude in a moment like this? Never to be repeated. The show begins and their dresses fall to the ground. Beck and I make love once a week, every Friday without fail. It's beginning to feel more like a task to be ticked off rather than something to be enjoyed. This level of desire and craving is new to me and it's at once embarrassing but completely freeing. Another pang of guilt twists my chest but arousal quickly overrides it as they put me under their spell. The way they're moving, the incoherent whispers to each other, the searching of their hands and tongues, it feels almost like 
witchcraft. I've always thought strip shows and lap dances to be tacky, reserved for alpha males with no self-respect, but they make it look like art. I ache for them. I just want more, more, more. Flesh on flesh, they arch and sprawl across me, dining on each other and not letting me even feed on the scraps. My body moves and writhes with them, but it's an itch I cannot scratch. As the show ends and they shake into their dresses once more, I'm left with a savage appetite. Don't worry, sir. The night is just beginning. They escort me back to the bar, where a surprise awaits me. This time the drink is yellow, almost fluorescent. I sip it down, knee-tapping frantically, waiting for room number two. Can I interest you in something from under the counter, sir? What have you got for me, Lloyd? I see what you did there, sir. He places his hands beneath the bar and brings out a gold tray with a selection of glossy tablets. How would you like to feel, sir? (laughs) Not sure about this, Lloyd. Uh, Did a bit of weed in college like most, but I'm no junkie. I can assure you, sir. These are top of the range. Clean. 100% fun. What's the black one? Ah, well, that one you might not be ready for, sir. How about the green one? (laughs) You've got me curious now, Lloyd. It will hit you like a train at first, sir. But I can assure you it's first-class travel after that. I'll be back in bed soon, under the covers. The sun will come up and this will be nothing but a memory, never to be repeated. Let's do it. Very well, sir. He pinches the black tablet between his fingers and I open my mouth and gesture him to drop it in. As soon as I swallow it, the room fills with fireworks. An explosion of green to my right sends me jolting off the chair, tumbling and falling us first into never-ending red velvet. Finally, I rise to the surface and begin to float suspended in warmth, shoulders bobbing, weightlessly drifting away from the barman's voice. Sir, are you okay? Never better, Lloyd. As laughter and conversation fade to oblivion, a feeling of utter calm begins to wash over me. But just as I let my head fall back and close my eyes, hands wrap around my wrist and pull me back into the bar. Like a train, sir. And what do we have behind door number two, Lloyd? Only one way to find out, sir. A woman greets me and guides me to a chair, and it's another case of sit and watch, this time with a dozen men and women fornicating masks on all, some even wearing tails, some strap-ons. Glass after glass of champagne goes down, but I still feel the disconnect, and I long for more. Each of them moans in their specified animal noise, all the time a kaleidoscope of fleshy tones spinning around me. Thrusting, gyrating, cupping, squeezing, but it all ends with familiar disappointment as the animals begin to dress, and I'm escorted back to the bar. Just wait until room number four, sir. Lloyd pours deep red liquid into the glass. Another show? Of the interactive kind, sir. Room number three is a small casino, a large roulette wheel taking center stage. Six women surround it, all wearing bunny masks and the same sleek black dresses. Please, sir. They gesture to the small table to my right, more champagne and an assortment of mouth-watering canapes. 
Your chip, sir. The center woman pushes the multicolored stack towards me. I begin to wonder how much time each chip represents, but such thoughts fade as their lips find my neck and their hands find my chest and crotch. We drink, we eat, we throw my life on the table and cackle about it until (laughs) tears fill my eyes never to be repeated. Yet, as they escort me back to the bar, a glass full of warmth waiting for me, the itch still evades. Room number four is ready when you are, sir. I was born ready, Lloyd. Very good, sir. He walks me over and opens the door. I peer inside, but only darkness awaits. What have we here, Lloyd? Ecstasy, sir. As I step into blackness, a hand wraps around my waist and draws me in. Lips are on mine, hands claw at my shirt, ripping it open. Nails run across my nipples, sending ripples of pleasure vibrating through my body. While someone works at my belt, I'm lowered into softness. Tongues run across my skin and teeth sink into my flesh. My pants are off, a hand gripping around my length, and now warmth envelops it. Flesh in my mouth, hot breath everywhere. This is ecstasy. Someone guides my fingers into their moistness and moans with pleasure. Writhing, squirming, jerking with pure delight, I begin to howl, but the noises that emerge are more animalistic than before. More join in the chorus, and I know I'm in the company of wolves. Flesh melts together, a rhythm of synchronized pleasure that heads towards a long-awaited crescendo. This is raw, sweaty, primal, unlike anything I've ever experienced before. My breathing is heavy and erratic, and my heart pounds so hard against my chest it feels like it might explode through. With a final howl, my long-awaited orgasm comes body-twitching with ecstasy until I fall into the now-damp blankets. One by one, my pack leaves until I'm left on my own with only the darkness for company once more. Lloyd speaks from the open doorway. I trust everything was to your satisfaction, sir. No complaints from me, Lloyd. That's the way, sir. Can I prepare you another drink? I think it might be time to fly. As you wish, sir. Oh, uh, Lloyd, can you flick the light on, please? Sure, sir. Let me know if you change your mind about the drink. Grateful for the soft red glow, I scoop up my clothes from the floor and begin to dress. The room slowly spins as I wrestle with my sock and I eventually nosedive into the sheets of the gigantic bed, breaking into childish laughter. What a night, what a truly extraordinary night. Never to be repeated. Thanks for your hospitality, I utter to Lloyd on the way out. He nods and offers a smile, continuing to dry the glass. The three young women give me nothing as I wave my goodbye. Using the handrail to stop the staircase from moving, I guide myself down, eyeing Pitbull below with his arm around an elderly man, head lolloped to one side and tongue hanging out. Pitbull catches my glance and nods, leading the guy towards the rusty door. They spent a bit too much time here, sir. I smile politely and negotiate the rest of the stairs, chandelier fizzing on and off above. Hello again, sir. Lloyd, how the hell did you- I get around, sir. Your jacket, sir. Thanks, Lloyd. You're welcome, sir. Just a matter of your bill, sir. He begins tapping at the keys of the gigantic cash register, the now rusty bells going like the clappers. 
Horse Lady is hunched over the bar, drumming her fingers on the counter. Two of her nails have already fallen off, her sequins no longer sparkle. As a seemingly endless roll of paper curls out from the top of the register, Lloyd begins to hum. It's the familiar hum I hear when night driving. He looks up and smiles, waiting for the machine to catch up, finally tearing off the piece of paper and handing it over. An explosion surges across my chest. Lloyd, this... this can't be right. It it, it says I owe... 36 years, 42 weeks, 16 days and 3 hours? That's right, sir. I'm struggling to breathe, but at least the pain is settling a little. This must... (coughs) The cough I never knew I had doubles me over into a series of hacks toward the checkered marble floor. Must be some kind of joke. It's all there, sir. Itemized. I can assure you everything is in order. This is a very exclusive club. The woman does not look over. I run my eyes over the bill. Bottle of Dom Perignon. 216 hours? It it says here I spent over six years on roulette. And over 28 years on women? I'm struggling to get enough air in, a wheeze accompanying every word I manage to croak. This is a very exclusive club, sir. There is a single nail left on the woman's hand. I heard you the first fucking time! I slap the bill onto the counter. Lloyd, come on, this is... My hand. Puckered skin, veins, age spots sprinkled just above the wrist. The bill is already settled, sir. I hold my hand up, inspecting the alien skin that confronts me. Don't forget your mask, sir. The wall-length mirror reflects my posture, shoulders hunched. I step in towards it, observing the skin hanging from my Adam's apple and the errant hairs protruding from my ears. A stranger awaits as I remove the mask, yellow and watery eyes, sagging skin, rapid breath fogging the glass. No... No, no, this is wrong. I step closer to the glass, inspecting the bag of bones that stares back. You never said anything about aging. How did you think this worked, sir? I I thought it was just... (laughs) The cough doubles me over once more and my chest screams in pain. I I thought it would come off the end. (laughs) More hacking, more pain... Lung cancer, sir. I'd give you three months, tops. I've never smoked. Just bad luck, sir. I watch the path of the tear down my cheek. I want more than anything in the world to sneak under the covers and nestle up to Beck. I'd be a good husband, a better man. My legs buckle and I reach out to the glass for support. Can I get you that nightcap now, sir? I can't go home. Not like this. Three months tops. Lloyd's smile awaits as I turn. Oh, why the hell not? I throw the jacket across the counter and perch on the stool. What will three months get me, Lloyd? How special, sir. We'll be with you in a jiffy. Cigarette? The woman leans across, offering the box. No thanks. Can't afford it. Besides... Smoking kills. She smiles, shaking her head. The last of her nails join the other four on the counter. 
A thunderous slam snaps my head around to where Pitbull stands by the rusty door, rubbing his hands together. Still cold? Not where you're going, sir. <laughs> a snigger escapes my lips. Hell of a joint you've got here, Lloyd. I just manage it, sir. Here's your drink. It's black and bubbling like hot tar in a glass. As I hold the drink up towards Horse Lady and Pitbull, Lloyd brings out an old-fashioned phone from under the counter. I watch his finger work at the dial. Six, six, six. Cheers, Lloyd. I say, offering a final toast. As blackness begins working its way through my veins, I hear him say into the receiver, Got another one for you, boss. Welcome to the town of Habitsville. It's an odd place. You could call it quirky. You could call it quaint. If you've had a bad experience there, you could even call it cursed. But in this tale, shared with us by author Samuel Singer, you could call it unsurprising. That is, until Sam discovers a new eatery that he's never seen before, despite living his whole life in Habitsville. I join Jesse Cornett and Wafia White in performing this tale. So let's go hang out in Habitsville. We'll check out the stores and grab something to eat. But don't worry about the ingredients. One thing I can promise you is that the Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. It's good to be home. After the frankly insane events of the past month or so, there's nothing like settling back into the comfortable life of a small-town newspaper reporter. Except, of course, if that small town is Habitsville. We're prone to the strange here, through no fault of our own. Bizarre things just seem to happen, and just like clockwork, they're happening again. It came to me by word of mouth, but as far as I can tell, it started with a sign. I walked by the bakery myself just to be sure, and there it was, hanging in the window. It was small, white, and plain. The words on it stood out in an unnatural way, like I should have missed the phrase when I was walking by, but instead found it commanded my absolute attention. The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. An odd sort of laugh rose in my throat when I actually saw it. Because up until that point, I thought Heather had lost her mind. Heather is my primary co-worker at Habitsville Gazette. We're good friends, and often talk about everything from our pieces for the paper to what shows we're binging on Netflix. I know her pretty well which is why it was strange when she suddenly said something extremely out of character mid-conversation. 
She'd been talking about her parents coming to visit from a few towns over and how cautious they always were when they came to Habitsville, as visitors often are. We were packing up our things for the day before we went home when she said, My parents should be here Thursday, which is way too soon. The apartment's a mess, and it's too small to fit all of us anyway. The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. But how do you tell your parents they should get a hotel outside of town? I asked her what she meant. But as you might be able to guess, she had no idea what I was talking about. I even repeated the phrase back to her, but not a hint of recognition appeared in her eyes. I went home, and after a while, I forgot about it. But then I heard it again. Stepping outside of my house for work the following morning, I spotted my mailman, Phil, putting a few envelopes into my mailbox. I waved to him and said good morning, and like any polite person, he answered. Good morning. The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. He held his smile, as though he hadn't said anything strange, and cheerfully moved to my neighbor's mailbox. I, however, was deeply confused. It felt like some sort of prank, though I had no idea who would orchestrate it and why. I heard it again later that day. In fact, I heard it 17 different times. Some people repeated it. Some only said it once. I even have a transcript from an interview I was supposed to be doing with an old woman who just turned 102. Where there, right in the middle of a sentence about her great-grandkids was the phrase, The butternut bakery does not serve human flesh. I hadn't heard it when she said it, but it was there, typed out in my notes. So there I was, clocked out early on a Tuesday afternoon, just so I could stand in front of this bakery. I was bewildered, but not just because of the phrase, though that was bizarre on its own. I lived in Habitsville my entire life, and not once have I heard of a place called the Butternut Bakery. And yet, after an afternoon spent wandering the streets of my own hometown, I found a new shop right there in the middle of the main strip. It's a small building, but not so small that I would miss it. The building itself had an inviting burnt orange color, and the yellow lights inside made the entire place look warm and enticing. The smell of baked goods drifted out and over the pavement to where I stood on the other side of the street, fighting the overwhelming urge to go inside. Because there was the sign, wasn't there? The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. It seemed like such an odd thing for a bakery to have to clarify. Maybe it was some sort of fun reference to Sweeney Todd. That's not exactly an appetizing allusion to make to potential customers, but there was something about the sign, something about the phrase. It was like the more that I heard it or read it, the less odd it seemed. The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. Of course it doesn't. No bakeries do, or should. It's just good advertising to make the fact clear. I didn't see anyone walk in or out of the bakery for around 15 minutes 
though plenty of people walked down the sidewalk. It was strange. Even the window shoppers that were strolling from display to display didn't bother to stop at the bakery. It was the late afternoon when someone might want to grab a snack or a late lunch. But no one gave it a second look. They didn't even seem to notice the smell, which was becoming more distracting by the second. My stomach began to growl as I caught another nostril full. And then... I saw someone emerge from the bakery. I had to squint, and it was hard to recognize him outside of his uniform, but I could still tell. It was Phil, my mailman. He stepped out of the bakery, holding a small bag, and immediately began to walk down the sidewalk. I crossed the street and approached, walking behind him. Phil! Oddly, he didn't respond. I thought perhaps he didn't hear me, so I walked faster until I was beside him. Phil! (laughs) At the second call of his name, Phil stopped and turned to look at me. He smiled when he recognized me. Oh, Mr. Singer! Funny running into you here! Though his tone would suggest that we were having a normal run-in on the street, it was anything but the sort. There were markings drawn on his face as though he was about to have some sort of cosmetic surgery. There were long strips drawn down his cheeks, and I could see the ink was peeking out from the circle that marked his ear. But as it turned out, that wasn't the oddest part of Phil's appearance. I had thought it was his bag that had been dripping, something dark trailing from the door of the bakery to where we stood now. But since we had stilled, the trickle only came faster and began to pool in a puddle around our feet. It wasn't hard to miss the source. Framed by the frayed edges of the shirt he wore, I could see that there was a large chunk of flesh missing from Phil's shoulder. Not like he had a bad wound that needed to be sewn up. There was nothing to sew. It was a scoop out of his body and I could see the tip of his shoulder bones poking out where they had connected at the socket. I didn't know what to say. There was no trace of pain on his face. There was no signal that he even knew what he was walking around with. And oddly enough, no one on the street seemed to notice either. I had a brief rush of fear as I considered that perhaps I had lost my own sanity. Then, he said it. I've just picked up a bit of a treat for myself. The butternut bakery does not serve human flesh. I've just finished my route for the day. He unraveled the folded up opening to his bag and held it out to me. Would you like to try? I tore my eyes away from the gory wound on his torso and instead peered into his bag. In the bottom... As innocent as could be was a medium-sized pastry. It was pocket-style, crimped on the edges, no doubt with some sort of filling inside. My stomach was turning violently now, and I just shook my head at Phil. Suit yourself. This is the second time I've been in this week. It's terrible for my diet, but it's just so good. (laughs) The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. I'll see you tomorrow morning, then. With that, he turned and continued down the pavement. 
walking with a limp I had never known him to have before. I walked to the front of the bakery. Despite the warm glow coming from inside, the windows were not well suited for a display. The glass had some sort of coating on it, and although I could see the light shining through and dark shapes moving around inside, I couldn't make anything out. I was so focused on seeing inside that I didn't notice when someone had opened the door. The small bell at the top jingled, and I looked up. It was Heather. I lurched forwards and grabbed her by the hand. She flinched in shock and then half laughed. Sam, God, you scared me. The butternut bakery does not serve human flesh. Are you going inside? She motioned into the open doorway and I looked inside. It's difficult to describe what I saw inside the butternut bakery, mostly because the inside scene with the naked eye was strangely similar to the view through the glass. There was this hazy film over everything, and only two certain sights could be gleaned. The bright yellow light and dark shadows moving around in the back. You shouldn't go in there, Heather. I know this sounds crazy, I, I know. I took a deep breath, then said, But I think the butternut bakery is serving human flesh. Or at least that's what I meant to say. I could hear the words as they came from my lips, though they were not the ones I had chosen at all. I said... But I think the butternut bakery does not serve human flesh. I stood there, horrified. Heather furrowed her brow at me, one foot still on the doorstep of the building. Yeah, Sam, I know. You told me before. The butternut bakery does not serve human flesh. I think it's great. I blinked. I told you before? The fear that was rising within me was quickly turning to panic. I had thought Heather had been the first one to say the phrase to me only a few days before, and never did I think I had said it back to her. Well, what when you mentioned it a few days ago? Her frown deepened. You've been talking about the bakery for over a month, Sam. I have? I mean, it's not much of a discussion. You pretty much say the same thing every time. She leaned back out of the door and pointed to that sign that hung in the window. The butternut bakery does not serve human flesh. As I stood there, spiraling, Heather looked down at my hand, which was still clasped firmly on her wrist. Now, if you excuse me, you're being weird, and I'm hungry. This shook me from my days. I couldn't let what had happened to Phil happen to Heather. I pulled hard on her wrist as she took another step towards the interior of the bakery. I tried to warn her, tried to say, I just saw my mailman come out of there with a huge piece of his body missing. Just missing, Heather. You can't go in there. I don't know what's going on, but it's dangerous. That's what I tried to say, but deep down, I knew what was going to come out. 
The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. 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 I pulled Heather even harder, and she fought back with as much force as she could. The shadows in the back of the bakery were moving faster now, even buzzing around the edges, each vibrating violently with some unseen energy. The yellow glow of the lights burned brighter, so bright I had to squint. I thought of the blood trail I had seen drip from Phil's shoulder, the exposed bones and the ligaments peeking through the mangled skin, the butcher's lines drawn on his face, and I pulled with all my might. Heather lost her footing. We fell backwards, one on top of the other, hard on the pavement. The door she had pulled open slammed, as though sucked back like a vacuum. When it did, the bell at the top jingled violently, and the entire building jumped with the force of the closure. And it was that flinch, that slammed door, that made the sign fall from the window. I saw the words, The Butternut Bakery does not serve human flesh. One last time, in plain black text on a white background. Then I blinked, and it was gone. Not just the fallen sign, the entire building was gone. People were walking by us now, as though they hadn't seen what had happened. Instead, they only gave us odd looks and stepped over our bodies. I sat up and looked around, the main street of Habitsville was just as I had always known it, before I first heard that phrase, the one I don't dare speak again. In our final tale, we join a pair of guys who are forever up to something. You know the type. Always have some kind of plan, scheme, or scam on the go. The goal is to get rich quick. Or at least it was. Because one of them is trying to turn his life around. But in this tale, shared with us by author James Maddox Kennedy... We're reminded that old habits die hard when Bo presents Mark with a seemingly lucrative and easy gig that just can't fail. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, Graham Rowett, and Ellie Hirschman. So let's take this last job for old time's sake. This one's a sure thing, I promise you. It just means we have to venture into places not meant for people. Beau DeSalle was my best friend. We went to state college together, skipped classes together, went to parties together, and, eventually, we dropped out together. 
My degree was in business management, Bose in sales and marketing, but we always knew we'd be better off making moves outside of cramped lecture halls. We thought we'd make a startup like the guy who made Facebook, but learned fast that was a lot harder than a good concept, a cheap website, and a sales pitch. We talked it up to our parents, and mostly to girls at parties, but after months of hitting brick walls, we decided to pursue other options. To be fair, I caved first. Bo thought we could salvage the business concept to run scams on other folks who wanted to get rich quick, but I vetoed that idea fast. My parents wouldn't give me the dough to head back to school, especially with good old Bo by my side, and told me that I needed to ditch him, so I revolted. I stewed a while, rented myself a studio apartment, and got a dead-end job at the nearby gas station selling lukewarm coffee and cigarettes. Bo didn't mind working nine to five, but I did, and it killed me. Every minute behind the counter, I was worried that I might run into someone I knew from high school who would inevitably ask how things were going at college and when I'd be graduating. Bo acted like it was no big deal because he didn't mind grunt work while he, quote, planned the next business opportunity. He always shook it off. And somehow I was the asshole for telling him I hated working for minimum wage. Relax. It's temporary. Money's just like food. No matter how much you eat, you're always left hungry. Even the best ramen and caviar on the planet won't fix it. In the end, I cut the guy some slack as the one person who disliked me less than my own parents, and I really believed him for a while, too. Within three weeks, we were selling kitchen knives on commission, but ended up with no commission and lots of leftover crap we couldn't get rid of. We tried Bitcoin mining, but I'm no tech genius and neither is Bo, so we went bust and nearly set my laptop on fire. I was pissed, but I can't say these weren't also my ideas. Nevertheless, our series of losses never seemed to make Bo too upset, even when we had to eat ramen and steal soda from my workplace to make ends meet. A few weeks later, we came up with our most brilliant plan to date. Middlemen for international shipping. It wasn't my forte, but Bo promised me he knew a trustworthy guy in South America who, for a fee, could move cattle and other beef products from Argentina to China. So I ponied up my last scraps of cash, set it all on the table, and, of course, that trustworthy guy took off faster than a bat out of hell by the end of the month. My dad stopped answering my calls and texts, assuming that I would ask him for more cash, which wasn't entirely wrong. I tried to make Bo confess he had made up the South American guy. I told him I wanted my money back. I tried and failed to make him tell me that it had been a con, but Bo held his ground and insisted that he too had been scammed. We had nothing. I kicked Bo to the curb after that to take a little friendship break, but that bastard was determined. The very next day, the door chimed as he pushed it open and bolted towards me with a vengeance. 
I was sitting with my feet up behind the bulletproof glass. I set my phone down to look up at the goofy grin stamped on his stupid face. The hell do you want, Bo? Listen, listen, I got something new to show you. He set his meaty forearms on the counter and pressed a cracked phone screen against the glass. New app I found on the dark web. You make loads of cash for making special deliveries. And what makes them so special? I don't know. It doesn't matter. His phone chirped with a notification. It's what they're called. You accept each order on the app, pick up your package, take the item from point A to point B, and bam, you're done. You just follow the instructions to a T. There's no way you make money that easy. I raised an eyebrow and folded my arms, intrigued by the prospect, but I couldn't show him that. What do you deliver? Pizzas for drunk college kids? Drugs? Nah. He grinned cryptically, his blue eyes glinting. I don't know. You're not supposed to look inside the packages or ask questions. Special stuff you can't send through normal mail, I guess. It sounds shady. I leaned back in my plastic chair. How much do you earn? I don't know. Depends. Like, maybe a grand for a night of deliveries? My heart sank to the pit of my stomach. A grand? I'm telling you, man. It's easy money. Bo held up a cheap cloth bag embroidered with the red logo of two wings. Like, all you need is a car, and they send you the delivery bag. I clenched my jaw, looking down at my name tag clipped to my blue uniform. I was here rotting away behind a counter while an idiot like Bo was apparently making money hand over fist for what? Delivering some packages? He swayed with nervous excitement. I'm telling you, man. You make good money out there running for all kinds of people. So you're going to use that app to pay me back? Bo's stupid smile faded for a moment. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. That's what I wanted to tell you, actually. He licked his lips and leaned closer to the glass. So... They got this program, right? You sign up with a friend. Then you both work on the deliveries. Premium special errands is what they call them. Some of the orders are real big, and you need more than one person to help. But you get double returns. So I'm guessing that's where I come in? Bo nodded. I'll show you the ropes. You just do exactly what the app says. We make every delivery on time... And we'll be fine. It's easy. Still sounds like a pyramid scheme. Whatever, man. I don't care because I'm getting paid. I know you get off work in an hour, so you let me know, all right? Bo disappeared out the door. I thought about his offer all day, but I kept coming back to the thought of a grand. I dipped out of work five minutes before the end of my shift, left my uniform on the counter, and met up with Bo later on. 
I can't help to think about what might have happened if I hadn't gone out with him that night. Come on, man, this is bullshit. Just tell me it's bullshit. Dude, I swear the app is legit, alright? Just calm down before you make me nervous. A gift shop. That's where Bo's app had taken us. Multi-part delivery, the app had said. Pick up two items and follow listed instructions. Do not be late to each location. Doesn't tell you until you're already there. For security reasons or something. You do the first order, and I'll help you out. The app's on my phone, but I'll text you updates. Brutal fluorescent lights greeted us as we pulled into a spot near the entrance. I cranked the emergency brake of my old beater of a car and sat back in my seat, questioning why the hell I had agreed to any of this. Ignoring Bo's pleas for me to take the delivery bag, I slammed my car door and walked quickly towards the adobe building, kicking at dirty flyers stuck to the asphalt. But as I approached, something intangible filled me with a deep dread that spread in waves through my body. Like I wasn't meant to be there and see this place. It tainted the psychosphere with a sharp, bitter taste. The lights inside flickered like strobe lights in a nightclub, revealing toppled shelves and displays with picture frames, dollar t-shirts, and state flags. The place was already a dive, but it looked like an animal had torn through the store. I gingerly opened the glass door and wrinkled my nose at the harsh odor of sewage. I shoved my sleeve over my mouth. Hey, is somebody there? I coughed and tried to take in a full breath. (coughs) I'm here to make a pickup. Bo had told me there was no name on the order, nothing identifiable, just the gift shop address and instructions to enter at 11.48pm on the dot. I quietly stepped around the shelves and displays on the floor, and my phone buzzed with a text from Bo. New instructions flashed on the screen. Item 1 of 2. Black Amulet Necklace. Retrieve first. Do not touch the body. I tensed with a sudden fear. A body? What body? I turned to search the store for my prize, but only saw Bo seated in the passenger seat of the car, with his round face pressed against the window and fogging up the glass. He was trying to roll it down, mouthing something, pointing, then cupping his hands to shout at me. I could see the whites in his eyes as he frantically gestured. I spun around, my eyes roaming upwards to the ceiling, and my skin crawled. Above me, a body was lying prone on the white-tiled ceiling, a teenage kid lying on his side as if the gravity in the room had flipped, like his bruised corpse had bloated. I wasn't sure if he was still alive. A few feet away, a short, bearded man floated upside down among the rafters. 
his vest hanging loosely and a dark necklace floating near his mouth. The teenage boy next to him bobbed back and forth like a balloon caught on a tree branch swaying in the breeze. Dark droplets spilled from the corner of his mouth and hung in the air, with some pooling on the ceiling without dripping down as they should have. I almost stopped breathing when I heard a low hum coming from the boy's gaping mouth. I climbed onto the shelves to reach up with shaking hands and snatch the necklace from the bearded man. It broke off easily, and I hopped down to the floor. Another display across the store fell over with a crash, sending glass ornaments and postcards skidding across the floor. I ducked and crept around the aisle, holding my breath before peeking my head around the corner. Another body had risen, by itself, from the floor to the ceiling, bumping along the rafters. The woman's eyes rolled back and her limbs were limp like she was suspended underwater. Another shelf tumbled to the floor behind me. The growling hum from the floating bodies grew louder and the smell stung my nostrils. My bones felt tingly and light somehow. My phone vibrated in my pocket. Hands shaking, I brushed dust from the screen. Item 2. Styrofoam container, Bose text read. Ice cream freezer by the register. Wrap the necklace around the box. Do not open. The hum filled the space alongside the buzz of the fluorescent lights. I kept glancing up at the ceiling while I walked cautiously between the aisles, breathing shallow, quick breaths. The bodies seemed to push harder into the ceiling as I crept towards the front of the store. The boy's body looked squished against the rafters so hard I thought he might burst and shower me with insides. Bo was pounding on the car window and pulling the inside handle with his entire weight, screaming silently. The woman's body pressed harder into the ceiling, the black fluid pooling by her mouth, producing the awful smell. I scrambled to pull open the freezer and rummaged to find the box, my heart beating and the low hum becoming deafening in my ears. I felt a cry escape my own mouth and pulled a toaster-sized styrofoam container from the freezer. The ceiling creaked and groaned with the weight of the bodies pressing upwards. I wrapped the chain hurriedly around the box like the instructions had said and sprinted towards the exit, bile rising in my throat until I forced my way through the doors, stumbled across the parking lot and into the car, then pumped the gas until we were as far away as possible. Our car ride was silent except for the wheezing sounds of Bo hyperventilating next to me, and the thud of my heart pounding so hard that I felt weak. Dirt road and endless clumps of dead brush stretched ahead of the pale headlights. What the hell was that? Bo said nothing, keeping his chin to his chest. You're in deep, aren't you? I said it like I didn't already know the answer. 
Bo wouldn't look me in the eye. You fucked up. I gripped the steering wheel tighter. I bet you're here to drag me down with you. No, man. You gotta listen. Bo's eyes were wide and pleading. He licked his chapped lips and focused on the dashboard like he was conjuring the right words. Like, I'm not bullshitting you here, man. Like, I just need some help with a few deliveries. Bo, tell me what is happening or so help me God. The poor guy was shaking. I would have felt bad for him too if I wasn't ready to throw him out of the passenger door. I failed a delivery two nights back. I wasn't going to make it on time. I started seeing messages on the app, but also other places that were... He trailed off, staring off at the dark expanse of the desert. Like, messages that said they would hurt me if I didn't deliver. That there would be consequences. I thought I was losing my mind. Like, the billboards and road signs I was driving past were telling me I screwed up. I smirked, but Bo furrowed his brow, worry creasing his reddening face. Look, man, I tried to snap a picture, but like, my phone just stopped working. I'm dead serious, though, okay? All these signs said they were going to hurt me if I wasn't on time. It was awfully convenient he lacked any evidence to back up his story. But Bo seemed so terrified, I thought that maybe for once, that he wasn't exaggerating. So, like, I went hell fast to get there on time, but when I was literally jogging to the front door, I fell and dropped this vase I picked up from an antique place. Thing broke and spilled everywhere. Bo clasped his hands to stop them from trembling. After that, they told me not to even think about skipping town if I wanted to stay on the top side of the soil. They said I'd have to make up for my mistake and not screw it up this time. The way he looked at me with a sidelong glance tugged at my heartstrings like nothing else. I relaxed a little. I let his words sink in and watched the dust rising from the dirt road. God, you're such a dumbass. I kept my eyes on the dirt road ahead and shook my head, considering my next words carefully. This is the last time I bail you out. Got it? Bo breathed a heavy sigh of relief, like his large form was deflating. You're a real good guy, Mark. Not trying to screw you here. I just need some help. You're a really good guy. Way better than me. Yeah, whatever. But I don't want you near my ass after this, alright? This is it, then we're done. Like, you and me are done done. The words hurt to say. Bo's smile faded, but he said nothing. Where to now, huh? Like, how many more of these we gotta do? One. That's it. 
He attempted a weak smile. Just one. Then we drop him off at a motel. It's a couple grand payout if we finish before 2 a.m. I nodded but kept my eyes on the road. Looking at Bo directly made my blood boil, so I stared ahead, trying to make a contingency plan for whatever we'd see next. The app guided us beyond the last stretches of paved road, through miles of brush and cacti to an empty construction site. Pillars of concrete, orange crane, rebar, and all. A couple of floodlights sat knocked onto their sides, casting dust-filled beams of light into the sky. We had made dozens of left turns to the point where I was convinced that we'd just end up back at the gift shop, but we somehow made it. I tried not to think about it too hard. I rolled down the windows to feel the cool night air on my cheeks before I heard the faint drone. My heart sank and Bo was back to hyperventilating, tapping the styrofoam box on his lap, wrapped with the black necklace. You go in for this one. You go. I watch your back. Are you kidding me? After what we'd both seen, I was furious he'd even suggest that. You want half of the score, so you're getting out of the damn car with me. What's the pickup? A knife. Bo unclipped his seatbelt and scrolled on his phone. A kitchen knife, buried ten paces north from the base of the crane. What? I'm just reading what it says. He flashed the phone screen in my direction. Item 3. Kitchen knife buried beneath soil ten paces north of the crane tower at New Vista construction site. We slammed the car doors shut, trying not to pay attention to construction equipment left running, and the tools spilled on the ground. It already felt wrong, and I could tell from the disgusting smell of sulfur and rot that things would only get worse. As we approached the crane, I saw a handful of construction workers laid out on the ground around us. Their mouths opened to sing a slow, droning song that surrounded us. My brain felt like it was on fire, recovering from a fever dream only to be thrown into another. The people on the ground didn't move, but they didn't seem dead. Their limbs stuck out at unnatural angles with their eyes open and unseeing. They weren't floating yet either, which I counted as a bonus. Near the crane sat a dump truck on its side that had been filled with dirt, engine running and collected dirt spilled onto the ground in a pile. I plugged my ears and watched Bo put one foot in front of the other, heading north for ten paces and landing just over the pile of dirt. I turned on my phone's flashlight to get a good view of the mound. Dig. Bo seemed dazed and ready to snap, dropping to his knees. He rolled up his sleeves and swallowed hard. It's almost 1 a.m. We don't have time to screw around. He cleared away some dirt with his bare hands. Can't be late, man. 
can't be late, all right? Before we had cleared a few handfuls of dirt, the first body rose to the sky. Something about the bright floodlights and sickness emanating from the dirt made me nauseous. Another construction worker rose from the ground, floating gently into the night sky and drifting up into space. I realized Bo was heaving and muttering Catholic school prayers. The drone so loud now I hadn't heard him while we clawed at the slimy soil. There's more. He turned away to look. There's way more of them. Shut up, Bo. My hands were raw, but I plunged them into the dirt. I think one of my nails had broken. Just shut up! Man, they're going up faster now. You need to stop digging. Can't do this anymore, man. I don't think we should do this. Shut the fuck up! My fingertips grazed something warm and fleshy, and I drew my hands away at the sensation. I dug out more soil to see dirty fingernails and dusty hands tightly clutching the knife. My heart sank, and Bo stared at the ground. He looked as ill as I felt. I dug away around the edges, and Bo's whimpers faded under the drone from the rising bodies. The air around us filled with the stench and the figures that rose higher and higher, with no ceiling to stop them from floating into the sky. Their bodies remained rigid, their eyes and mouths opened to smear the air with screams that blended into a hum that filled my brain. My bones felt light again, and it took more energy to bring my hands to the ground like invisible strings were pulling me up towards the sky. Let's move it! I had tunnel vision. We both clawed at the hard dirt. At some point, Bo grabbed a hammer from the ground and used that to pull away the soil. We need to leave, man. Bo whipped left and right to look at the bodies rising with the eerie hum. I felt nearly weightless as we exposed the white fingers touching the edge of the knife. Just don't look at them. Let's finish something for once. Bro, we shouldn't move this. He peered closer at the soil and set his hammer aside. I don't feel good about this. I tugged, and the knife came free with a cloud of dirt. I clutched my prize tightly, and the feeling of weightlessness dissipated immediately. But to my horror, the fingers twitched, the dirt below unearthing to reveal the body of a man beneath the soil rising upwards. I fell backwards as the man thrashed his body covered in layers of dirt so that the whites of his eyes stood out in the darkness. I couldn't believe he was still alive after being trapped under feet of soil. But he was being pulled upwards until the soles of his boots pointed towards the sky. The man grabbed onto Bo's arm with a vice grip. Please, God, don't let me go up. Christ, just please don't let go of me. 
Bo tried to shake him away, but the man only gripped more tightly and screamed as he was pulled harder upwards. Bo looked like he was about to cry, swiping at the man's grip. Don't let him go! Grab him! I reached for the man's arm while Bo continued to shake him off. The man cried and sobbed, clutching Bo's arm with white knuckles, tears streaking up his dirty face. Get some cable! I wrapped my hands around the man's wrist. Get me some string or a belt or something! The man looked ready to pass out as the forces pulled him upwards harder. Bo's grubby hands quickly tied a blue cable around the guy's wrist. His grip loosened and I tried to hold on to him, but the forces pulled him taut, stretching his body until I heard his shoulder come out from its socket with a sickening pop. Hurry, he's gonna pull me up! My sweaty grip was loosening by the second. Tie him down! Bo looped the cable around a bit of rebar jutting from the ground, frantically muttering to himself. The man was unconscious now, and the pull so strong that I could feel it pulling me off my knees. Tie him down! My grip slipped. The man shot upwards, rising rapidly before jerking to a stop, the blue cable catching him. His shoelaces fluttered above his feet, a shaft of light illuminating his legs dangling upwards. Bo sniffed loudly and wiped his nose, then his phone buzzed lightly in his pocket. He unlocked it, the screen lighting up his bleary expression. Then his eyes widened. What's wrong? Bo, talk to me. Bo opened his mouth, but couldn't speak. He dropped his phone to the ground. I swiped it up and stared into the screen. Cut him down the instructions read. Please cut the blue cord and proceed to your next destination. Do not let go of the item. These are places not meant for people. My stomach turned, and I glanced up at the man floating twenty feet above us, his body swaying. We had to finish the instructions. My body was sore, my mind fraying, but we had to follow through. I could almost taste the money. It's your turn. I did the last delivery. I pushed the knife into Bo's hand. I could feel anger flooding my body. This is on you. I can't, man. Don't make me do this. We don't have time left, man. You gotta do it. Bullshit! You're going to do this, too. I always end up doing more fucking work than you, so now this is going to be on you. Bo was a big guy, but I was stronger. I grabbed his fist so it wrapped around the knife and forced his hand towards the cable tied to the rebar. Get off me! Just cut it! He's gonna fly away anyway! We struggled, falling to the ground and gripping the knife. Bo thrashed, but I pulled his hand and the knife closer to the cable. Jesus! 
Jesus, let go of me! Don't be such a pussy. I jerked his hand. In a single stroke, the cable snapped like a guitar string breaking, and the body disappeared into the black. Bo clutched the knife and trembled, tears welling up in his eyes. I stared at the bit of rebar sticking out of the ground, struggling to control my breathing. I squeezed my eyes closed, as if that alone would rid me of the floating bodies and Bo's sobbing and the weight of the situation. I opened them to see Bo's phone light up. Thank you. Please continue to the next location for drop-off. This place is not meant for people. Bo sobbed. I dug my elbows into the dirt and stood, took the knife from Bo, and strode back to the car. The reality of what we had done hadn't settled into my stomach yet. I sat in the driver's seat and glanced at the glowing green numbers on the dashboard. It was already 1.42 a.m. My mouth went dry as Bo closed the passenger door, wiping his tears. He set down the hammer he had picked up on the dashboard. Do we gotta go, man? He put his dirty fingers in his mouth to bite at his nails. 20 minutes. We gotta go really fast. Jesus, then get us the address or something. I hit the steering wheel hard enough that Bo jumped. Where are we supposed to be? Motel 7, East Avenue. I cursed under my breath and sped out of the construction site, heading back towards the main highway, the engine screaming. How'd you even find this stupid hat? I mean, it's typical for you ending up Shit's Creek like this. I'm just trying to get this money back for you, man. Bo's hand clenched in childish anger that I made him pull his weight for once. He nudged the styrofoam box on his lap. What the hell is in here? Do not open it. I kept my eyes on the road. We can't open the box, remember? Or did you not even read the instructions? This is insane, man. I don't want to be carrying bad stuff in here, all right? He wiggled the amulet wrapped around the box, the styrofoam screeching until I slapped his wrist away, my eyes darting from his face to the road so I wouldn't miss the exit. Don't. Touch it and I leave you on the side of the fucking road. You're always trying to tell me what to do, and I'm sick of it, man. You never let me do anything, because you think anyone that isn't you is going to ruin it. We drop this off and we're done. Done for the night and done. I sped down East Avenue, only slowing to hang a sharp left into the parking lot of the motel. Bo carried our goods under one arm, hammer in the other for protection or God knows what. I spotted a motel door dead ahead unmarked except for an X sprayed across the peephole. I was dizzy, and the air smelled wrong. The angles of the motel appeared crooked somehow, the lighting slightly off, but we trudged forwards. 
The battered door swung open to reveal a tall figure cloaked in dirty white sheets like a gown. His face was completely wrapped in bleached bandages that covered his mouth and nose, with silver sunglasses that reflected our sober expressions. I was thoroughly creeped out, but relieved that we had made it with a few minutes to spare. The figure pushed the sunglasses up the bridge of his nose. It is bright inside. The man gestured to his sunglasses. His voice was grating and heavy, and I was suddenly aware of a low hum coming from inside the room. Are you here for my delivery? I am the surgeon, and I will need your assistance momentarily. I must confirm your delivery, so please enter. Here's your stuff. Still clutching the hammer in his hand, he set down the styrofoam box. I noticed that the necklace was wrapped loosely at a funny angle. My head spun. I hadn't been watching him closely. Bo hadn't taken it off, had he? He had left the amulet wrapped around the box, right? I am the surgeon. His voice sounded like broken glass scraping concrete. Please enter. Otherwise, I will be unable to pay you for your efforts. His tone sent chills down my spine. A single glance to Bo, and I knew this was not a request. We stepped inside the motel room, and my heart fluttered as the surgeon turned the lock behind us. The motel room had two beds lit by yellow desk lamps and tainted with mildew. The far bed was empty, but on the nearest bed was an older man laid on his back. Chains wrapped around his wrists and ankles bolted to the floor while he floated a few inches above the sheets. Dark patches spread across his wrinkly skin with black lines arcing across his bare chest in stripes. My knees buckled at the sight. I need your assistance with my client. He requires a transplant. Bo whimpered, his face sickly white. He requires a new liver. He has ruined his own liver. The surgeon waddled towards the styrofoam container on the floor. It will fail and must be replaced. The surgeon opened the container, removing a pulsing, glistening mass that he held gingerly in the palm of his hand, a liver from God knows where. He brought the organ to his face and smelled it sensually, like he was sampling wine. But then he set the liver on the box, dissatisfied somehow. You removed the amulet. This liver is rotten. No. No way. We kept it on good. We did exactly what it said. Wrong. Where is the final item? My body tingled with fear and the sinking realization that we were screwed. 
couldn't believe we had forgotten something or missed an order or Bo had misread the instructions. Less than five minutes until the deadline. Now there is less time to complete my ritual. I require item four. We don't have anything left to give you. Incorrect. A dark line creased into a smile where the surgeon's mouth would have been. I will not pay otherwise. I ordered four items, so unless I am mistaken, I should receive four items. The room seemed to bend and rotate on a new axis. I turned to Bo, who licked his lips and slowly drew the phone from his pocket. His other hand trembled and gripped the hammer tightly, not like he'd be man enough to use it. What is he talking about, Bo? Box? Necklace? Knife? So what's the last item? Well, it'll have to be one of you. You have a minute now. Bo, what's he talking about? I felt my heart sink lower than I thought was possible, but I forced the words out of my mouth. I thought you said you weren't trying to screw me. Bo only shook his head, fresh tears welling in his eyes, his lips moving without making words. I stared blankly at the surgeon. <laughs> I am in need of a donor. In case the transported organ is insufficient for my purposes, I need a donor. <laughs> the surgeon held up the empty box. Unfortunately, this is one of those occasions. Looking into the reflection of my own pleading eyes in the surgeon's glasses, I saw Bo raise the hammer above his head to strike. I turned and raised my forearm to catch the blow. I landed a punch to his gut and Bo doubled over. Screaming into his pale, ugly face, I knocked the hammer from his meaty hands and threw him to the floor, landing on top of him. The surgeon made no attempt to stop me. I hit him harder and harder until Bo's lips split and the blood gushing from his broken nose covered his face and my hands. The surgeon pushed me aside. His sunglasses fell onto the carpet and my stomach turned when I saw that the surgeon had no eyes or nothing that I could see as eyes. Bo tried to speak but only let out a guttural sound. The surgeon draped the amulet around Bo's neck, uttering whispers and making clicks with his tongue for some incantation. The edges of the room shuddered, and the drone enveloped my mind. I crawled away from Bo, his screams ringing in my ears when the surgeon touched his skin with the knife. Bo cried out to me again. I dug my fingers into the stained carpet dragging myself away from him and the old man and the surgeon. 
The room seemed to bend and sway with the two dark holes in place of the surgeon's sockets. That deep, unseeable blackness sunken into his skull. I avoided looking into Bo's bloody, disgusting face. I ignored his screams and looked outside, my body halfway out the doorway. I glanced back at Bo just before I kicked that motel door closed behind me to see his body lifted from the yellow carpet. His bones ready to be pulled from his skin. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.